Good morning, Team Kulak community, and welcome back to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine War. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Kulak Center, and as always, we're joined by Dr. Yuval Weber, our resident subject, our resident Russia subject matter expert. And uh, Yuval, welcome back, and uh, I think we'll just get right into it because it's been another, you know, pretty newsy, I think, couple of weeks since our last episode with things going on both, uh, both you know, within the war inside Ukraine's borders, but also some things going on um, on the periphery of those borders and a little farther abroad as well that are sort of noteworthy in terms of some of the second order effects of what this war has um, has done to to Russian influence, um, among other things. So uh, I think we were going to start we're going to start work our way outside from those peripheries and then on back onto the battlefield itself. So welcome. Good to see you. And uh, first, let's you know tell us what's been going on in some of the the Russia near abroad um, these days. Thank you for uh, having me back on. Um, and so where we're, where we're starting in terms of thinking about, you know, these second order effects, uh, one of the things I was thinking about, you know, over the last couple of days is now that we are unfortunately, you know, what, 15, almost 16 months uh, into this particular conflict, um, we're now seeing essentially more than a year past what are the long-term, medium to long-term consequences? And that came to mind because in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, the disputed territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan, after at this, what is now going to be more than 35 years of conflict um, between Armenia and Azerbaijan is slowly uh, winding down uh, and will result in a victory for Azerbaijan. Now, um, we've talked about this over the course of this series, you know, and also the last couple of years, is that to bring people up to speed on Nagorno-Karabakh, this is an area that has been internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan, but during Soviet times, Armenians basically moved in and it became an Armenian, um, Armenian region, Armenian exclave. And in 1988 through 1994, there was a conflict between Armenian and uh, Azerbaijani SSRs, and then, then independent countries over control of it. Armenia won decisively. Over the next several decades, what the Azerbaijanis then did is used all their oil and gas money to basically modernize their entire military, uh, deepen cooperation with Turkey, buy the best uh, drones and other uh, equipment around. And over the course of the last several years, owing to relative inattention from the United States, and certainly uh, what's much more important, the worsening of relations between Armenia and Russia to effectively take back control of Nagorno-Karabakh uh, slice by slice. The worsening relations between Armenia and uh, Russia come from a personal dispute between Vladimir Putin and uh, Nikol uh, Pashinyan, the prime minister of Armenia. Pashinyan, he came to power through a color revolution. So even though Armenia is in all of Russia's um, security and economic alliances, such as the CSTO and the Eurasian Economic Union, uh, Putin obviously despises Pashinyan and everything he stands for. So as Armenia has been losing more and more of Nagorno-Karabakh and more of their, um, their, their people have to go into Armenia proper, uh, Russia has demonstrably done very little to support them. And that's culminated in this week's news in which uh, Pashinyan and the people around him have uh, signaled and have said explicitly 
that they are ready to recognize Nagorno-Karabakh as the territory of Azerbaijan. This would culminate in basically the reverse of, you know, military victory several decades ago, but it says several things. And here's sort of like, when we think about what does Russia look like after this conflict? Russia's presence as the peacekeeper between Armenia and Azerbaijan was to safeguard Armenians' victories in the 1988 and 1994 war. By giving that up, this means that Armenia likely has zero reason to continue being in uh, the CSTO, which is Russia's sort of security alliance. It means that Armenia doesn't have much reason to be in the Eurasian Economic Union, which is stacked in favor of Russia versus all the others. And that in terms of having a normalization with Turkey, Armenia and Turkey, this was the very last thing. Turkey won because they've been the ones uh, supporting Azerbaijan and getting the territory back. So when we think about what Armenia could look like after this, that it'll be something like Georgia, that Russia is always going to be the largest country, um, you know, in the region, but, and, you know, like large parts of the Armenian diaspora will be in Russia. It'll always be an important economic partner, but it'll no longer be the important. It'll be the only uh, economic and diplomatic partner. And it's going to be like a lot of dirt for Armenia to eat, but ultimately there is a, like a vision, like a very clear path for them to effectively work through, uh, Turkey and essentially become much more Western facing. And what the critics of Pashinyan have said is that this has been his goal the entire time by giving up Nagorno-Karabakh which is painful, which is giving up a limb, that he'll be able to get rid of Russia and basically enter Europe. And that might be one of, again, the longer term consequences of this conflict. I, I realize, you know, for, you know, maybe larger powers in the world, it doesn't seem like a lot, but I think that's another, another data point in the discussion that, you know, you've noted in many episodes before is, you know, we are now entering the post post cold war world and realignments are happening, you know, that are, that are changing where people fall out on different, um, you know, economic security arrangements that they were part of for decades. That's changing, um, shifting. And this is potentially another, you know, um, maybe not hugely impactful for, um, you know, Europe or, or Asia particularly, but potentially very impactful for Armenia, um, and Azerbaijan. No, so certainly, you know, and the when we're talking about the end of the post Cold War world, uh, you know, if if the post Cold War world was Russia trying to identify um, basically the limits of its uh, power and influence, you know, we're finding out. But at the same time, uh, the government of uh, Georgia uh, basically put out a trial balloon. Uh, they so one, they've re uh, permitted direct flights from Moscow, uh, which is obviously uh, hugely controversial inside Russia, but the government has also floated an idea of effectively joining the Eurasian Economic Union, which seems to be contrary to, you know, where the direction of the world is going, in return for Russia withdrawing its support from South Ossetia and Abkhazia. So again, and if we then think about Azerbaijan getting the territory, you know, its territory back, as it were, when we put all of those things together, 
we can see that there is a vision of the caucuses, um, you know, over the course of, you know, the next several decades in which Georgia may or may, may, or may not be part of like the broader Western camp. It may essentially become tied much more closely into uh, Russia, but that Armenia and Azerbaijan essentially become the very Eastern edges of Europe as both of those countries get tied much more deeply into Turkey and Turkey, you know, essentially still is the periphery of uh, Europe, at least in the political sense. So as China, you know, is replacing uh, Russia in Central Asia as the dominant economic power that's already happened, political partner, we're observing that right now, and ultimately security follows. We can see that really where the US-led system or the European slash Western system, where basically the, the, the real borderlines are going to be, could in fact be not just the Black Sea in terms of North versus South, but the East versus West, that's in the Caspian. And again, consequences of this war, something to follow. Yes, indeed. And it just occurred to me, as you mentioned, you know, the where that that border, that transition point eventually moves east. We had said we were we were going to be watching what happened in Turkey with the elections. And it turned out we don't quite have anything to mention on that yet, because yeah. um, Erdogan and his opponents, um, I think 50 percent is the threshold to avoid a runoff. And I don't think either one of them hit it. So we're going to have a runoff election between those two. But, you know, again, something to watch, but also potentially very con consequential because you know, Turkey, Turkey has had a, a complex role and relationship in, in this conflict. Um, uh, you know, in it's, it's playing interest with its, you know, with Russia and playing interest with the West. So, um, yeah, something else that we're going to watch, but not something we, uh, we thought we might have something to talk about on the next episode and we don't quite yet. So we will have to right. hold that until, until potentially the one after this. Um, okay. So we're, we're, we're going to shift our abroad a little bit closer to, um, um, to the battlefield, but uh, we're talking about, we mentioned, or you mentioned several months back, there was discussion of nukes going to Belarus that Russia had signed a, uh, some sort of a security arrangement that would allow them to establish nukes on Belarus. And I think we've had some additional movement in that direction, if you want to expand on that. Uh, so certainly, so um, Belarus and Russia uh, through the union, the union state, uh, Political vehicle that they have together um, have agreed, uh, you know, Ministry of Defense to Ministry of Defense uh, to permit, um, if you know, operational needs dictate uh, the basing of Russian um, nuclear missiles uh, on the territory of Belarus. Uh, so, in terms of the attack, a potential attack on Europe, it would, um, you know, limit the or reduce the, you know, time to impact from what. Uh, Two minutes to two minutes minus 10 seconds, something to that to that regard. Um, it doesn't really change the correlation of forces of you know nuclear weapons inside uh, Europe, but what it does do is it creates a talking point for basically like the West to think about Russia in one of the few things in which it is uh, fearsome, which is the use of nuclear weapons. Um, so again, in terms of how much does this actually change, like, let's say, uh, NATO or um, US DOD, like planning, I'm not sure how much, to be perfectly honest. But what it does do is 
it gets people talking about nuclear weapons. So in that regard, what we have is a nuclear weapon talking point. Not sure what else to say on the subject, um, except to say that uh, if and when Belarus does, uh, you know, join the fighting um, in Ukraine, which after 15 months, they still haven't done so. So, you know, that's that's what they have going on for them. Um, this will be a point of contention for the next government of Belarus. Yeah, and the uh, you know I think that the nuclear talking point, as you said, that's the that is the one thing I think like Putin knows a pretty good certainty will get attention because that's kind of the one really catastrophic card that he know like he can play, right? You know, mo most of his other threats of weapon systems, what have you, you know, his military capacity has been uh, proven to be somewhat lacking, but that's not a chance you can take with nuclear weapons. Um, and, and so on yesterday's, um, you know, Solovyov, you know, basically one of these like uh, real red meat uh, Russian talk shows, uh, <clears throat> the guy Solovyov says the West is disrespecting us. You know, they're giving F-16s because they know we're weak. The only way that we can essentially reassert our credibility, the only way that we can reassert uh, deterrence is we need to attack somewhere in Europe so that they know we're serious. And he then goes on to say, uh, we're going to go after basically, like, let's say, a British carrier uh, strike group or he says and or England. And the the guests on the show are like. You could actually see when the camera sort of briefly pans across them. They're like, you've been drinking a little too much. I know you need something in order to, like, get your blood moving to, like, host this show. But they're like, okie dokie, buddy. And so, like, one of the guys is like, no, I think that's a bad idea. And, like, Solovio starts to attack him, basically, like, you know, calling him into question, like, why not? We need to do this. They're disrespecting us. You know, they don't respect us. And he's like, yes, I don't, it's not that I might. And the guy responds, basically, I don't mind using nuclear weapons. I'm just afraid of being on the receiving end of the response. And it's, you, and you can just start to see, like, how angry Solovio starts to get because he's like, they're not going to do anything if we use them. They'll know we're serious. And the guy's like, no, I'm pretty sure if we use a nuclear weapon against the NATO country, NATO will respond in kind, and that's going to be bad for Russia. You know, and he's like basically trying to like steer Solovyov back into like, you know, safer talking point territory of like nuclear weapon use against Ukraine which is not a NATO member, uh, but Solovyov just like, is just getting like angrier and angrier that no one agrees with him that uh, a nuclear strike against a NATO uh, member is uh, good and nothing else will happen thereafter. So that's to give you the sense of, you know, when we're talking about what does this do in terms of talking points versus actual planning consequences, the talking point bit is far more important. Yeah, you know, our, uh, I'm not going to call him our friend, but our uh, we've mentioned Solovyov a few times before, and it's been been a while since I've seen one of his rants. Um, so, I uh, I guess he's he's still around and, and kicking. Um, but yeah, no, I I think that exchange is definitely interesting in a recognition, at least for some, even among some of the hardcore, you know, you know, the Russian hardliners, that you will not get away consequence free. <laughs> slinging nukes um and you know it definitely it, it, it certainly drives attention and you know you, 
from a very, very cold-blooded sort of talking point, understand like Russia says nukes, and that's going to make a lot of a lot of folks in the West like they will hit pause and listen because that is the one thing that you they're willing to take no, you know, sort of no risk or gamble with. Um, but it, but it also seems in the reverse that that person on that talk show is at least internalized when when the Western countries like you know and the United States and all and all the NATO partners say if you do that our response will be devastating. Uh, they're serious. Uh, and, and it does, and it, they said it does not have to be a nuclear response, but there's enough conventional high, you know, precision mass fire, like it, it functionally, you will be dismantled conventionally in a devastating manner. So in the, basically what we can say is the, the bar room talk, uh, versus the reality based universe. Um, no, I, I think what you were referring to is that earlier in the war, uh, the Russians were threatening to um, attack, uh, you know, not just use uh, tactical nuclear weapons, but to do so against the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in order to create a larger ecological disaster. And uh, the basically the foreign policy chief of the EU, President Biden and President Macron of France, all said within, I think, maybe 12 or 24 hours of each other, uh, the Western response will be devastating and conventional, and much of Russia's Black Sea fleet uh, then moved away from the Ukrainian coastline uh, shortly thereafter. And we haven't heard much loose talk at the government level of um, of nuclear of nuclear usage. But I think when we're talking about barroom talk uh, versus um, the reality based universe, I think this is a great time to move on to. Uh, Vladimir Putin's adventures in cartography this week. Yeah, so let's go ahead and do that. So earlier, uh, just a couple of days ago, um, the philosopher king of Vladimir Putin uh, received, uh, you know, as part of his imperial audience, uh, the head of the Constitutional Court of Russia. And let's just say this was not a meeting of uh, spring chickens here. And so, uh, you know, one of the chief lawyers of Russia uh, basically brings uh, to Putin, a 17th century map, French map from the, I think the Louis the 14th, 16th, uh, I should have written that number down. Um, but he says, you know, uh, you know, Vladimir Vladimirovich, um, effectively saying, I know we've been struggling against, you know, not really Ukraine, because Ukraine doesn't exist, but basically the broader West, which in its, you know, eternal anti-Russia struggle um, is now arming you know, this band of uh, basically made up people in order to fight against Russia. And of course, Putin's taking it all in and he's like, yes, yes, these people have definitely always been, you know, made up um, and really, you know, we're fighting NATO, we're fighting the United States, we're fighting all of uh, the West at once. And the constitutional court chief basically takes out this old map and says, look, there's no Ukraine on this map. And of course, Putin looks at it and says, there's no Ukraine on this map. You know, it's just Muscovy and the Russian Empire that's so big. And, you know, they basically pat themselves on the back for uh, inheriting a big country. Two things sort of like came to the fore very uh, quickly. One is that as a view into the universe, the vast universe contained in Vladimir Putin's mind. The talking points that make him like feel happy, safe and warm. Ukraine doesn't exist. There's a broader collective West against Russia. It is Russia's, you know, task 
as given by God and history to defend, you know, the virtues of whatever is good, right, and wholesome by fighting back, and that this has always been the case. Putin then makes the point, you know, that he's made in numerous speeches before is that Ukraine doesn't exist except as the consequence of the mistake, quote unquote, uh, that Vladimir Lenin did by creating Soviet Ukraine when he needed support, um, marshalling all various, you know, manner of the political coalition to fight against the whites, the white forces following the revolution and in the Russian Civil War. And that the existence of modern Ukraine can be directly attributed to Vladimir Lenin and all the bad things he puts on the Bolsheviks. So one, we can see this is how Putin thinks because he's willing to go on camera and have this conversation yet one more time. The second thing that comes up is that, um, you know, a lot of people have looked at that map before. And one of the great things about it is there is a area on that map that clearly says Ukrainians, land of Cossacks. So even on the map that the constitutional court chief was telling the big boss, no Ukraine on this map, lol, JK, there literally is a Ukraine on that map. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Yeah, the the ability of people to live in different realities is always pretty remarkable, and it it, it sort of struck me um, as you're talking about that. Like the it sort of seems like the last the last refuge of the desperate is like ancient cartography, because that's that's more or less like China's argument, right, for why it owns the entire you know sort of near Pacific region, right, is because they've got some old map that's got somebody drew a bunch of lines on it this one time. And uh, that that means that they they've owned that for now and forever in perpetuity. And um, yes, uh, cartography is sort of the uh, I think the, the last the last refuge of the I don't know the scoundrel or the the loser or the argument whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So I think you know nationalism is the last refuge of scoundrels, and cartography is the last uh, the last stage of the owned. Just as like an aside, there's like uh, in the movie Braveheart. Obviously, like there's William Wallace, like played by Mel Gibson, and as he's sort of like becoming successful and coming to the fore of the various warring clans um, in Scotland, who have essentially been divided over various, you know, claims to the right of the Scottish throne. Uh, he's basically like in the meeting of the nobles, and they basically ask him, "Do you believe in the rightful claim of us?" And the others are like, "Or do you believe in the rightful claim of us?" And he's like, "I need to fight the English." that's my core task right now. And that to me is sort of like Putin looking at a map that has Ukraine on it and saying, yes, there is no Ukraine on this map. And you could just see like in his sort of, in his universe, as soon as this pesky war's over and Russia has won a resounding victory, he can go back to like the Kremlin strategic grievances and welcoming European leaders and, you know, eventually, like the reach goal of the US president coming to Moscow to beg forgiveness and to offer concessions. And like, that's, that's where he is right now. Open question as to whether he will ever move, uh, move beyond that and his 18th century cartography as the basis for his causes belly. Okay, so yeah, all right. Yeah, we just want to kind of that was a little interesting little nugget uh, talking about the sort of the abroad here. So I think the next thing we're going to move on to, we're going to we're going to bring it back into uh, the actual battlefield in Ukraine and some of the immediate environs 
And we're going to start off with kind of a quick look at the situation in Bakhmut because that was a that was a topic pretty detailed of our last couple of episodes. And um, things do seem to have shifted there um, in a couple of ways. There was, uh, you know, first of all, our friend, not our friend, but our our fellow traveler on this podcast, um, Prigozhin, said that Wagner had finally taken the last parts of the city of Bakhmut and we're getting ready to turn it over to, uh, you know, conventional Russian forces. Um, on the flip side, there were also uh, some local counterattacks by Ukrainian forces kind of along the flanks. So I, I think the map now sort of looks like, yeah, R Russian forces of different flavors have the urban area itself, but the flanks have been sort of straightened out so that, um, you know, that risk of encirclement um, had, has been more or less eliminated. And I mean, it'll depend on how far the Ukrainians want to go in their counterattacks. But um, if those flanks were very, were relatively weak, you know, now that there's potentially a future risk of Russian encirclement, you know, if that is something Ukraine wants to put the resources into, which is not necessarily the case, um, you know, but then from the Ukrainian government, there were also, you know, when Prigozhin said his bit, um, the Ukrainian government responded that, no, there was still fighting going on. But then there was also that uh, comment from President Zelensky where he said, you know, Bakhmut lives only in our hearts now because whether or not there are Ukrainian forces, you know, on, on whatever block of the city, it's a ghost town. It's a pile of rubble. It's been utterly destroyed, um, similar to Mariupol and some of those other places. So, um, yeah, so I guess we're, you know, our, is, uh, or is, is the contest for Bakhmut largely sort of gone its course? Um, and then what do Prigozhin has kept talking ever since then. He's got lots of things to say. So um, what, what has he been saying? And I guess what are sort of the uh, sort of the near implications of where those lines are right now around the city? Right. So um, there's a lot going on. And sort of like one of the things to note is one of the reasons that we keep talking about Prigozhin is fundamentally he's in a PR battle with the with the Russian Ministry of Defense and the actual like Russian general staff and he has to essentially maintain his viability in not so much the public eye because sort of like how much he's covered sort of like in the official press is sort of like related specifically to like you know his role as like owner of Wagner Wagner is doing stuff but he is 100% appealing and creating content for the Russian military bloggers. And I think this is sort of like just a point to pause on for a second. The thing that sort of like Prigozhin like totally understands um, much more than sort of like his bureaucratic rivals is that in this particular war, and we've talked about this like, you know, over the last, you know, 15, 16 months, this is the first completely social media enabled war that you can follow 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And Prigozhin is a master of creating content. And when you create content, people will follow because whether they like or dislike any one particular thing, they know that you're basically producing. So just that sort of is like one of the things to keep in mind. So over the past couple of days, uh, he's given, he's put out numerous videos and like given numerous interviews in which one, he continues his personal attacks on Shoigu and Gerasimov a lot. Uh, he calls them very bad words that we cannot repeat in English or in Russian. Um, he also he also called uh, 
He also questioned the uh, the heterosexuality of Shoigu's son. Uh, Shoigu's son, by the way, uh, yeah, has a, has a very colorful group of uh, of uh, friends. Um, son-in-law also like hangs out with porn stars. There's like there's a lot of people going on there. Um, also criticized uh, Shoigu's uh, granddaughter for partying on Instagram in Dubai at a level inaccessible to most humans on earth. But in a larger sense, the argument that Prigozhin has been making for a very long time, and this is something that you've brought up in previous episodes, is that the Russian Ministry of Defense is completely useless, not because the soldiers are bad or the soldiers are useless themselves, but because their leadership is weak, effeminate, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and deeply corrupt, so that they are not training, equipping, or preparing Russian citizens to do the fighting that would basically extend the glory of Russia itself. And so then when he pivots to talking about Wagner forces, he's saying, you know, these guys are the salt of the earth because you know what? They may not be volunteers as, you know, the, you know, people like on Russian military forces, but for an honest day's work, they'll get an honest day's pay and look at what I am able to do. I'm able to take Ukrainian towns that Russian forces would not be able to take in a million years of fighting. And so even when he's talking to like the convicts that he's taken directly from prison, he's saying, look, these are guys who could easily stay in prison, but they're willing to do it because they know they actually have a chance of doing something great. So when we then think about what's the broader picture here, Rigozhin is contrasting himself to Ministry of Defense and the Russian Armed Forces. And he's placing himself for what happens after Bakhmut and after this war. Obviously, the Russian Ministry of Defense uh, and you know those sorts of people, these are bureaucratic survivors. Shoigu has been serving in government since the 1990s. He basically knows how to uh, you know win a turf battle or two. Shoigu is probably going to want to kill Prigozhin as soon as it becomes politically palatable. So Prigozhin is basically puffing himself up, putting himself forward as the only man who's able to actually do something to create himself, you know, this image as the Marshal of Bakhmut, the person who brought victory to Russia to defend himself in the inevitable turf battles that follow, uh, both after this war and after, um, after Putin is gone. So that's essentially, you know, part of the story now. And so as a demonstration of that, uh, Prigozhin put out a video in which he said, uh, and this was, I believe, yesterday, yeah, that Wagner forces are having now achieved secure, uh, victory in Bakhmut. They will be giving over Bakhmut to the Russian uh, military in order to maintain the victory. Obviously, the Russian military is stretched thin as is and holding on to something that has such tremendous symbolic value. If the Ukrainians, as you put it, Put the resources to retake this uh, this piece of land, uh, you know, this basically giant pile of rubble at this point. That would be Prigozhin saying, "What I won, the Russian army lost." And so he left. Also, and he put it demonstratively. He's saying, "I'm leaving two fighters uh, to help Russian armed forces, you know, show them a thing or two about victory." And the two guys that he brought out, one looked like uh, he just started shaving. And the other guy looked like he has not just one foot in the grave, but like he's waist deep uh, in the grave. Um, 
And so just having people who look maybe 40, 50 years apart in age was showing these are the people who brought victory, you know, essentially properly equipped, properly motivated, properly trained versus uh, Russian armed forces. And that, you know, is again, something to watch for the future. Uh, how does Prigozhin manage basically the end of this conflict? Does he basically move out his, you know, uh, forces from Bakhmut to preserve them in order to then march on Moscow? Does he use the, does he preserve them in order to like, you know, join later in the fighting against Ukrainian forces or just take him out of the fighting altogether? Or does he take him, uh, you know, after this experience in Ukraine and just send them all to uh, sub-Saharan Africa? Which I mentioned because Wagner's chief in uh, Mali has been, was sanctioned yesterday for one, you know, obviously just, if you're Wagner's chief in Mali, you should expect to be sanctioned because you're involved in breaking lots of other, you know, international laws. You're basically engaged in sanctions breaking as is. Um, but the interesting thing that the treasury department put in the sanctioning document is that he is actively sourcing weapons from across sub-Saharan Africa and other parts of the world, weapons and weapon systems for use in Ukraine. So whereas we've talked about Russia putting weapons into, you know, the, the edges of international politics, you know, going back to the days of Viktor Bout, now the Russian needs are so great that they're trying to get weapons back from sub-Saharan Africa for Ukraine. That was a lot, but what we have is, uh, Wagner's leaving Bakhmut, uh, allegedly. Prigozhin is placing himself as, you know, part of the conversation long-term. And Wagner chief in Mali uh, sanctioned for trying to get Russian weapons back into Ukraine. Yeah, that, that last point is, uh, we have touched on it before, but goes into sort of the longer-term question of their, you know, Russia. It's a question for all, for all sides, ability to regenerate your materials and munitions to stay in the fight. And... So it is it is just an interesting point to note that they are, uh, you know, a country that used to be one of the biggest weapons export, like arms dealer to the world, basically, uh, is calling in all those chits and pulling all that stuff back because they can no longer produce what they need domestically to uh, to fight the fight that they thought was not going to be nearly as long as it is. So I, I want to so that you mentioned the march on Moscow, though. So I want to take that as a very. Um, rough segue into another thing we were going to hit on in terms of the the near environs around Ukraine. And it was this surprising and kind of bizarre um, uh, story over the last week that, that kind of boils down to like Russians invading Russia um, and uh, and and having some some entities that were fighting in the Belgorod region, which we talked about the Belgorod region before because I think it's kind of a it's a staging point for, um, you know, logistics and uh, munitions and things for Russia. It's very close to Ukraine and Ukraine has conducted attacks against Belgorod previously. Belgorod has been in the news. You know, it's it's close to the front lines. It's uh, and it's sort of suffered the fate of of a key key piece of terrain close to the front lines for both sides. And then we had this just this bizarre sequence of events of a a a russian self-identified russian group of sort of freedom fighters or independent operators invading um towns around belgorod and the russian ministry of defense forced to respond to that 
And uh, the, the sort of the current lay of the land right now, I think, is, is still very unclear in terms of whether this group was completely repelled or if they withdrew and they're they're getting ready to go again. But can you kind of explain to us like what just happened, um, who these people are, uh, what the, what we think they were potentially trying to achieve, and um, you know whether this is. Are these truly independent operators that Ukraine was just like, oh, you guys want to cause problems for Russia? Here's some weapons. Go crazy. Um, is there a closer covert alignment to the Ukrainian government? Like what what is going on here? Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack here. What, what we know is that people uh, under various names, like basically like, you know, Freedom of Russia, Russian Volunteer Corps, um, went uh, went past the border. Uh, demonstrating that the border itself, uh, even in the midst of an active war, where the border defending Belgorod, where, as you put it, the Ukrainians are attacking Belgorod. They are attacking Russian territory, you know, from their own. Um, apparently, there the border guards were, there were 25 border guards, of which there was one, uh, I believe, one second lieutenant, a non-commissioned officer, and then 23, uh, you know, conscripts, uh, all of whom put up uh, effectively zero resistance because uh, basically these these adventurers uh, doing a raid or you know incursion into Russia uh, had tanks, had armored vehicles, and basically uh, went and uh, knocked out the first few settlements in order to have you know like their their picture uh, inside Russia. And these are groups who had gone, you know, they had you know, probed inside the border before. And, you know, it really sort of like demonstrated Russia is not able to defend its border in a very like well-known place. Um, the Russian response uh, was predictably enough. They started bombing their own towns uh, in order to like try and knock these people out. And as I was talking before, you know, the, we've talked about bomb Voronezh before. Now we have bomb Graivoron as a, uh, as a as a real thing. But one of the other things that, you know, is super important, and I mentioned just a little while ago, you know, talking about Prigozhin and content, the Russians sent a three-star, like General Lapine, to the area in order to, you know, respond. Like, literally, him wearing protective gear with a gun, you know, like the, the platoon commander you know, organizing the forces uh, against these invaders, which just sort of goes to show, how do you take things seriously? Do you, you know, harden your border defenses or do you send a three-star general to demonstratively go after the invaders? So the PR battle was de decisively won by basically like Ukrainian backed forces or these free Russia forces in the larger sense of it. The Russians, of course, claimed they killed everyone, destroyed everything, and then the same people that were destroyed uh, then put out like more videos saying like, lol, JK, here we are. Um, so who are these people? They run the gamut. There are people who are anarchists. There are people who are basically fighters for a democratic Russia. There are neo-Nazis. There are basically like everyone that you can think of. And their primary motivation, and this is sort of like when we were like thinking about how to describe this, like what is a proxy force 
versus what is a force that's going to do something and you just happen to align, sort of enemy of my enemy. The Russians who went into Russia in order to embarrass the Russian military, embarrass the Kremlin, these are people who for one reason or another are motivated by wanting to basically like defeat Russia, kill Putin, change the way Russia is run. That suggests that unlike, you know, like when, you know, what is the broader West interested in Ukraine? The broader West is interested in Ukraine not to defeat Russia, but to allow Ukraine to get its territory back. And as people have said, you know, for the last 15 plus months, if Russia just leaves Ukraine, the war is over. So in that regard, I'm sure in terms of like, you know, Ukrainian military intelligence, they're like, these people are a genuine cavalcade of freaks, but our interests are aligning. So if we give them some, you know, military equipment, um, we can then have the opportunity. And as we were discussing before, this might have been the first uh, invasion by one, you know, country or forces of another uh, simply for the troll. Because what then the Ukrainian advisors uh, to the president were then able to say is, Echoing the language that Putin used in 2014 when he sent the little green men into Crimea, he said, you know, around our region, people can buy military equipment in more or less any store. I have no idea who these highly trained special forces are, but it seems that they are locals rising up against, you know, the corrupt Euromaidan junta. And basically, if their interests align with ours, then all the better. And obviously, those are just uh, Russian special forces not wearing any insignia, who are pretending to be local in order to support the local Crimean parliament to have its secession from Ukraine, proclamation of independence, to then host a referendum to join Russia. The Ukrainians found genuine local freaks in order to do the same thing. And that obviously is part of trying to get at as a psychological operation against Putin directly if he heard any of this, that what goes around comes around. And again, like what we've seen over Ukrainian military intelligence since um, uh, since Budanov uh, went into control, into control of uh, those forces is that they have become very, very creative. Uh, they went after, uh, you know, the Kremlin itself and launched a successful drone attack. Now they're invading Russia. And, you know, in terms of putting it all together. If you're Russian Ministry of Defense, if you're in the Kremlin, both the military and civilian leadership, you're thinking, what else do we have to prepare for? And how else are they going to embarrass us? And those are the things that are meant to create the horns of the dilemma uh, for uh, the Russian leadership. Yeah, cl no, Cluster of Freaks, a great, uh, great, great title for a, a band name as well as a collection of folks who just happened to find military equipment lying around there. Um, but speaking of uh, those sort of that horns of the dilemma and the embarrassing, I think that's a, another good transition point into sort of our third theme of discussion day, which was looking at some of the developments of uh, employment of some of the, the weapon systems we've talked about, as well as potentially new weapon systems coming on the battlefield. So I'll, I'll start off with the, uh, you know, causing embarrassment. Uh, it, this week as well, uh, there was um, some new video footage and some still shots showing that Ukrainian naval drones uh, have been active again. 
and, and again, some of this stuff is pretty dramatic, right? Like there was a couple, couple different videos, uh, one from the, the Russian side, which I continue to find this interesting, the things that they're willing to share that don't actually really show them in necessarily the best light. But I know there was footage from there. So these drones apparently were sent against a Russian intelligence collecting ship that was operating in the Black Sea. And you had some fairly dramatic video footage from the Russian ship you know, using its close-in weapon systems to shoot at these drones that were coming at it. And they got one big boom, you know, we got the enemy very dramatic. And then Ukraine came out with video footage from another one of its drones that saw that, you know, one of the other drones that the ship didn't blow up clearly made its way directly towards the ship. And, you know, I think you, Ukraine said it detonated and probably caused some damage. Russia is certainly not going to tell you one way or the other, but the point is these maritime drones have again been employed in a highly visible fashion and then, uh, and as a corollary to that, it's, at least I read it this morning, but there was a another attack on Russian ships that are, you know, docked in Crimea, uh, you know, in what's supposed to be, you know, their territory and pretty far from the front lines. But, you know, another one of these still shots of a Russian ship, flames and giant columns of smoke coming out of it, very clearly it had been damaged in some capacity. Um, you know, so it's, uh, you know, again, what are the things that are not necessarily going to change the trajectory of the war on their own. But, uh, you know, this is, this is more of those, you are not safe anywhere. And you, you know, as you said, you, you don't know what we're going to do next. You can't plan to it, which can really, really get inside somebody's head, especially as you prepare for a counteroffensive. And, you know, one of the, the things and, you know, uh, that we've seen on this is, uh, the Ukrainians, again, talking about like their creativity in terms of like shaping operations, the Russians don't know where things are coming. So the ship that we were just talking about, the Ivan Kors, um, was in the sort of like more or less the southwestern corner of the, the Black Sea. And the naval ship that was uh, hit in some capacity uh, was in Berdyansk, which is uh, just a bit southwest of Mariupol, which is basically in this off the Sea of Azov, so like much further north. Um, and Belgorod, um, which we've talked, which we talked about a moment ago, is far northwest of that. So when we're talking about all these different things, these are you know hundreds of miles apart from each other. So just in terms of you know where the Ukrainians are hitting, more or less anywhere. Yeah. And to uh, you know, I'll pull in another movie quote here, but just the the dispersion and the you know, the, the randomness and the fact that, um, that there's no clear pattern kind of reminds me of a clip from uh, my favorite Star Wars movie, Rogue One, where they're talking about how this tiny force is supposed to infiltrate and cause enough of a distraction for the rebels to gain, you know, key intelligence about the Death Star. But they're like, you just got to go and just cause chaos, random chaos, make it seem like make one man seem like a hundred. And, you know, that causes, you know, we saw the, you see the effect in the movie, but I can only imagine, you know, it's somewhat similar effect on the Russian Ministry of Defense is like, you have no idea where these things are coming from, what target's going to be next, or how many forces might be operating in support of this. It could be one person, or it could be a, a larger, bigger threat deep behind you, and you just don't know, you know, and uh, that's, that's very hard to prepare for. And it, it works to the favor of the, you know, the side that's doing that, because, um, if, if they draw away forces to go after one of those spots, they've just created their own potential weak spot that could be exploited somewhere else. And again, you know, we've had the, uh, you know, the Ukrainian leadership saying, 
a, a counteroffensive is not, you know, a ceremony where you cut the ribbon, uh, that it's lots of things happening at once, that it's spread apart. And again, creating these dilemmas. You have a, a land invasion in one place. You have uh, going after port assets or ships in port elsewhere. You have going after ships at sea in a third place. And that's creating just lots of different things for the Russian uh, leadership to try to figure out what's the most important things that we need to protect and what are the things that are causing, like the guy who looked at a, a 17th century map that has Ukraine on it to justify that there's no Ukraine on the map to make himself feel better. They have to think to themselves, what are the things that are gonna cause him the most embarrassment and how can we mitigate those efforts? Calling on it now, it's hard to say, but I think Putin might be a snowflake. It's possible. And hey, this actually transitions well to one of our other talking points here, um, where Putin clearly felt some uh, sufficient public embarrassment about the lack of performance of one of his wonder weapons that he did something about it. So we, we there were reports over the last couple of weeks of, uh, I'm calling it hypersonic treason, but basically the, uh, the, the vaunted, um, the Kinzhal hypersonic missiles, which were supposed to be a, you know, a wonder weapon for Russia and something that could not, like uninterceptable, could not be countered by anything Ukraine could uh, put on the battlefield. Uh, well, it turns out that's not true. Um, you know, it turns out that the Patriot missile systems that uh, Ukrainians were trained on and then we provided them assistance with to actually use, uh, turns out they're quite effective at countering the Kinzhal missile because the rates of um, the impact, the, the destruction versus the rates of interceptions has gone into complete inverse. Um, interceptions are very successful against it. So Putin responded um, by, well, why don't you tell us how Putin responded to that? Uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll get into the technical details in a second, but hypersonics, supposed to be wonder weapon, as you put it, Patriot systems, uh, definitely were more than up uh, to the task. And that this goes against the entire purpose of how much time, money, and effort the Russians put into the Kinjal, which means dagger, uh, production. So what did the Russians do? They arrested the scientists responsible for the Kinjal and arrested them for treason, uh, for acts dating back years and years. And this is, if we want to have, just like to break it down and find the historical roots of this, a, a thing didn't work. So instead of figuring out why it didn't work, how can we make this thing better? What we need is someone to blame. Who is guilty? One of the key phrases of Russian political language. So they went after the three, so three of the top scientists associated with the program and arrested them for treason for having it, among other things, uh, unauthorized contacts with the West and passing uh, classified documents onto the Chinese in 2017. This is the 1930s in which someone was guilty because they are associated with something bad. So then they need to fabricate a case against them. And so the further back in time, obviously it sounds that, you know, the Russians are only, you know, the state is now only uncovering how deep the conspiracy was that explains why, you know, like the, the hypersonic missile didn't work. It's because these guys were working for the Chinese. In the 1930s, it would have been, you know, working for the British or the Japanese. 
Um, before then, in the 1920s, uh, it would have been working for, uh, you know, the French. And so all, and in the 1950s, it would have been working for the Americans. So all of these different things sort of reflect the, the sort of police state sort of like mentality that Putin is bringing in. If only these people were honest, we would have been destroying the Ukrainians in the field. But because these people were dishonest, that explains why our missiles did not work as planned. And, you know, when we, again, part of this, you know, that we always bring up these topics is not only to explain what's happening right now, but to sort of provide guideposts for the future. A Kinjal is a weapon system. When this war is over, there's no guarantee that Putin loses power. He could very well, and in fact, I would bet would be in power uh, after this thing is done. And so we're going to see on a society-wide scale the search for the guilty parties who did not prepare the Russian military and intelligence, who did not faithfully implement the vision and orders of Putin, and who conspired during the course of the war for personal gain to prevent the Russian military from doing everything it was capable of doing. So this is going to be the micro with this like with this treason trial of what you can expect across the entire elite and the entire state when this war is done. Yeah, you got to find the uh, what you know saboteurs and wreckers. You know, isn't that the yeah the popular term for those insidious folks who were traitors the whole time from the moment they were born, basically. So I, what we're talking about, what we're talking about, the, the Kinzhal and the Patriot weapon system. I think another point we wanted to get into was the. Uh, I, I don't know if, if surprising is the right term, but the highly effective performance, one of those weapons against, you know, what was supposed to be a, a wonder weapon, uninterceptable missile. There's a whole separate discussion about whether the Kinzhal was, you know, at least was overblown from our perspective on it. But the point is Putin thought it was a wonder weapon. Turns out it's not. And it turns out the Patriots very good at, at doing what it was designed to do, which is knocking those down. Um, yeah, but then the flip side of that is the performance of that weapon, as well as the Ukrainians who've been employing it, which um, seems to have been, obviously it's not stopping all of the missile attacks because as of this morning, I think there was another uh, attack in Dnipro, which again, taking, you know, the Russian targeting cycle, you know, why hit a military target when you can blow up a hospital or a children's clinic, right? Yeah. Um, um, but the, uh, you know, so that it hasn't stopped that, but where it's been employed, the Patriot is the Patriot and the Ukrainians employing it have been proven very effective. So what are, and, and maybe this jumps into the, uh, the, one of the other things we have before we wrap up here, which is the F-16 discussion, finally entering the chat here. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but before both of those things were sort of on the table, there was a lot of, you know, these things are too complicated for the Ukrainians to use. It's going to take too long for them to learn how to do it. So, you know, kind of why bother right now when we can give them things that they can employ right now. Um, but are we, I, does, do you think the Patriot employment, especially against the wonder weapon um, air quotes here, um, does that indicate maybe a, a shifting in that perspective and, you know, now potentially paving the way for, for F-16s as well as maybe some other things that were not on the table previously? No, so certainly. So what we've seen over the course of this conflict is, um, you know, you, you, the Ukrainians plus the supporters of the Ukrainian wanting everything, everything everywhere all at once, just in order to, uh, you know, bring this war to an end uh, as quickly as possible. And the caution exercise by President Biden is 
you know, things will get introduced to the Ukrainians, basically as they demonstrate um, the capability to absorb them uh, has been sort of like one of those phrases that, you know, like the DOD spokespeople sort of like always trot out is that they're not opposed to X, Y, Z, but they don't want things to be escalatory and they want to make sure that the Ukrainians are able to use them more or less right off the bat, that they're able to get trained and, and you know, use them uh, effectively. And so in this regard, we had the same conversation about um, air defense. We had the same conversation about um, tanks. We had the same conversation about um, armored uh, infantry fighting vehicles. And I'm, I'm sure we could go back into the archives and basically look at point to the exact same conversation that we've had many times in a row. And so when it comes now to the, to the F-16s, this was at the beginning of the conflict. The time wasn't right apparently then, but now that basically that Ukraine has been able to demonstrate that it can use air defense and the Patriot system basically per manual standards, that essentially permits the uh, US, how to, how to put it, the US acceptance that this is the time for the F-16 training ahead of um, you know, you know, European partners giving their own uh, to to Ukraine and then the United States backfilling them either with like different versions of the F-16 or the F-35 as many countries are now buying. And so in that regard, we had the idea that the Kinjal, this hypersonic, was supposed to basically seamlessly take out enemy air defense uh, in order to then basically provide for the uh, introduction of nuclear weapons into, into theater. Ukrainians demonstrated that they could take out these missiles. Therefore, giving the F-16 essentially says those F-16s are essentially much more defensible than they were before, that they can be used much more effectively than before. And that, in essence, is what we've demonstrated was basically the box that needed to be checked for American leadership to say, now is the time. Um, and so this is a point, you know, when we're thinking about what are the training implications. So like from your perspective, as an aviator, someone sort of like worked in this world, you know, quite deeply, between the Kinjals, the Patriots, F-16s, what have you seen in terms of the air war? And what do you think about the basically the training implications, because it's often said an F-16 is really complicated. It's going to take a long time to train them. But basically, the Ukrainians have been able to use everything as, as it's been given and been able to use um, uh, effectively. So where do you take it from there? I, I'd had sort of a small, inarticulate and somewhat periodically profane Twitter thread about this a little while back when I think the Patriots were first you know, being introduced. But I think there's a couple of you know things that we can we can dwell on here. And take away from it is you know one is uh, obviously the ukrainians are they're highly motivated and they're very adaptive learners they're very good at being at being taught and then putting the things that they've been taught into play and you know we've we've seen that i think you know pretty well with other weapon systems that have been given them but sort of one of the the talking points that had, had been out there almost since the start of the war for some of these more advanced weapon systems like the rationale between why are we not giving them to Ukraine right now was, you know, well, they're too complicated. You know, they're not too complicated, but they're very complicated. And it's going to take them months and months to learn how to use it and employ it. Um, and, you know, so rather than give, you know, rather than do that for something they'll have, you know, nine months down the road, we'll, we'll give them something else 
um, something that's not on their shopping list of request. We'll give it, we think we know better than they do. We'll give it to them right now, right? It's to solve the immediate problem rather than things that they may not be able to, to use in a, in a useful timeframe. And so I think, you know, when we've seen that, sure, they may be complex systems, but, you know, the Ukrainian forces, as we were talking about before we recorded, you know, not only are they um, sort of a probably a, a good baseline of just being a well-educated populace, they're highly motivated because their country is being invaded and they want the Russians gone. But I think also um, there's something to be said for maybe, you know, the, the pundits and us collectively looking at our own weapon systems, maybe they're not quite as complex and and convoluted as we all think they are. Um, maybe it's possible that the the weapons designers actually did a fairly good job of designing systems that are both highly capable, but also relatively uh, that that are that are easily trainable as well, right? If if you have a good baseline of of an intelligent, motivated, you know, learner, um, these things can be taught, and they don't take as long to master as we all feared because we you know we think we over engineer everything we do. Um, maybe we didn't over engineer. Maybe Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and Boeing and all the manufacturers, you know, maybe they made a really good weapon that is that can be picked up and learned um, by those who it's given to. And getting into the F-16 thing, I think this gets into another thing we talked about before we started recording was, I say we, and I sort of include myself in that, I think we may have underappreciated um, sort of the the starting point that the, you know, the Ukrainians potentially being giving these weapons are already at, right? And it, it could have, I think I call it sort of a, a quietly condescending attitude that like, they're too complicated for these people to figure out how to use. Well, yes, maybe if you're starting from like, you know, a, a conscript taken straight off the street with zero military experience, right? However, if you're going to give the Patriots and the F-16s, you're going to give those to people who already know how to employ whatever air defense systems they already have, right? Who have, who have real world experience and, and the Ukrainians have been getting real world experience in doing air defense since day one. So they know how to do it already with the systems that they have. This is just a new system that can do more things and do them better, um, you know, but they know how to do air defense, right? They're, they're not starting from zero. And I think maybe the same thing looking at the F-16s, if, if there's a, you know, the fighter coalition in Europe is maybe the first ones off the mark to sort of do what they what we've done with tanks and stuff like that, give them what's in Europe, and then U.S. looks to sort of maybe backfill. Um, but maybe we've underappreciated the sort of the starting point of, Ukrainian pilots who potentially receive the F-16, um, right? And uh, like, you're not teaching them how to fly, right? Like I, I mentioned sort of the pipeline for U.S. military aviation. If you're if you're brand new, right, never been, never touched a control stick before, sure, that's like a two to four year process or longer, right? Depending on the airframe that you get into. However, for Ukrainian fighter pilots specifically, they know how to fly fighter planes, right? do do fighter stuff with it. They've had, uh, you know, Soviet era aircraft for a long time. The F-16, it's going to be different, right? But now you're looking at, you're not teaching them how to fly. You're teaching them how to use a new thing. And, and the fundamentals are going to largely remain the same, right? Like laws of aerodynamics don't change for jet aircraft, right? They still apply uh, from, from a MiG to an F-16. Um, some of the tactical considerations, they, they may, there may be some nuances that you're shifting, but, you know, the tactics of air-to-air -air combat, I mean, they were codified back in the, 
you know, really in the 1950s or 60s by I'll, I'll throw John Boyd back in there again, just because I like to every now and then, you know, but the, like the tactics have been around for a long time. You have a new, a new platform that can do different things and do it better. Um, but you're not having to learn fighter tactics from the ground up, right? You've, you've done that already. Um, and so we're looking more here at what we would sort of call like a, you're doing a, you're doing a, a conversion or a transition process from where, from one airframe to another, where yeah, you got to learn the systems of the aircraft. You have to learn its nuances for how it performs in flight. There's a whole, like, you're going to have to set up a new logistical train um, to, to maintain that aircraft and keep it up in the air. But uh, we, we may have overstated some of the complexities of that um, because we've, and I think the, the Patriot system specifically, I don't know for sure, but that might've been maybe sort of like the quiet context that shifted the F-16 conversation from hell no to, all right, we're going to start getting you in the cockpit and we'll figure out the airplanes here as we come. Um, because uh, it may not, maybe it won't take like the, 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 the months and months that uh, everybody feared you know, this, that, it, that it would take to make it a military, militarily useful skill. Um, maybe that cockpit conversion process goes fairly rapidly once they get into it. Um, and, and we'll, we'll kind of have to see where that goes. And it, you know, the training is one thing still getting the aircraft and setting up the logistic support and all that is going to be that that's going to be its own, um, thing that needs to be set up. But again, sort of with all like the story of the tanks, right? Like F-16s already exist in being in Europe, you're just moving them somewhere new. And that means that there's already a logistics tail going into Europe to maintain the F-16s that our allies already have, right? Now you're just sort of moving, moving that tail a little bit further to the east and into a more hazardous environment. Um, yeah, but we'll see. I mean, it's, I, I think maybe the, the performance of the Patriot crews has potentially broken a logjam. I mean, we're, we're learning lots of things. We're learning that Ukrainians are fast learners. We're learning that they can, like, they have a baseline of experience that's maybe a lot higher than we appreciated. And I don't own stock in any of these weapon companies, right? So I'm not like, nobody's paying me to say this, but maybe American weapons and stuff are just good, right? Maybe they're well-designed. Maybe they're the, the training process packages and stuff that the manufacturers make to go with it. Maybe they're actually just good. And we have, we have overthought the complexity of some of these things. Um, maybe it was good stuff and the, the training that goes with it is really good and it's just good, right? Maybe, it, maybe that's just the case. It's the first time people, you know, it's well worth, you know, a few, a few warm words, uh, you know, for the, for the defense industry, you know, and as you were talking, one of the things that sort of struck me was when thinking about sort of like the U.S. sort of like, let's say military community, you know, for the past, let's say two years has really been focusing on sort of like Russia, Ukraine, last couple of years, sort of like also like China, Taiwan, et cetera. But broadly speaking, there was maybe 20 full years of counterinsurgency and working with Afghanistan and Iraq as partners. And there could be just sort of, you know, like the hangover from that experience as making, uh, you know, people think these are really complicated things. And, uh, you know, it's not clear whether our local partners are able to use them. And so in that regard, the comparison between the Iraqis and the Afghans versus the Ukrainians, whatever the sort of like baseline, wherever the starting point 
of basically those three different like larger groups quite different and also more to the point here the this is a longer conversation where the afghans fighting for their country where the iraqis fighting for their country were we involved in sort of like longer standing like civil wars slash like you know factional disputes the ukrainians are one people one government one clearly identifiable country so part of you know like from the pilots all the way down to you know the, the guys pumping gas for the planes those guys are all on the exact same page and that page is the better we learn and the faster we learn the more and more quickly able we'll be able to use this stuff to liberate our homeland from the invader so in terms of both like quality of supply plus intensity of demand highly educated and, and you know um essentially mobilized uh you know workforce as it were all this stuff is coming together this is as good as it gets in terms of weapons provision and training in the midst of a conflict yeah i i don't really have much to add to that except to say i think your your notation that maybe we have a hangover from those operations that is coloring our perspectives i am sure is very very true and is something we are going to have to work our way through to uh to maybe unlearn some lessons um or things that we thought were universally true from those conflicts and unlearn them for different conflicts that may have different shapes and different dynamics you know to include as you just said that the national like the national dynamic like are we one people or not and you know one of, one of the biggest things i think that came out of um iraq certainly to uh to some part but also afghanistan to a larger part was you were trying to make a nation out of people who never thought of themselves as one people it was a much more you know fragmented factional um tribal dynamic we failed to appreciate that maybe we <laughs> maybe we uh that that colored our look at a country that that does not have that right as you said unity of effort in a very clear fashion maybe in the in the next year or so or, or as this conflict goes maybe we can include that in our calculations for what we are providing or not providing well we've been going for quite yeah a long i think time. that's a good place to pause okay so then let's go ahead and do that and uh and let you turn away to to other things and, and get your weekend going so you've all as always thank you very much for your time uh thanks for getting us updated on uh you know many developments in the the abroad the the near regions and inside uh the country as well and we'll get you back on here in uh, as soon as we can uh, or as events develop for another update but until then thank you again good to see you enjoy the weekend and we'll catch you on the next one you too. Pleasure as always, Ian. Bye-bye. Yeah. All right. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Crewland community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support and we'll see you on the next episode.